We are rapidly coming to the end of our journey through the book of 1 John. We have two messages left, this, uh, this one and then one more after the uh, International Day of Prayer uh, next Sunday. Uh, both messages deal with uh, Christian certainties because of Christ. So that's what they're going to be called, Christian certainties because of Christ. Today we'll have part one. <laughs> In two weeks we'll have part two. John chapter 5, find verse 13. We're going to read 13 down to verse 17. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, and I do not say that ye shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin, there, there is a sin not unto death. Right, we have seen with uh, crystal clarity that our relationship with the Father through the Son is not uh, duplicitous, it is not vague, it is not unknowable. What I mean by this is you either are or are not loving God. You either are or are not loving other believers. You either are or are not keeping his commandments. You either are or you are not walking in the light. There's no room for discussion. There's, there's no gray areas. You either are or you're not. There, I mean, that, that's certain. The certainty is determined by your relationship or your lack of relationship with the Father by and through your faith in Jesus Christ, his Son. So what we're going to look at for this week and then in two more weeks, these, these certainties because of Christ. Now look at verse, uh, verse 13. We see the first one, the certainty of eternal life. It says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. This is perhaps the most imperative truth a person must know is whether or not they have been born again, whether or not they have eternal life whether or not they have a relationship by faith with Jesus Christ. And here John says that he wrote these things that you may know. Okay, he wants you to know. The Christian life is not built on empty hopes or, or wishes. It's not based on, on human assumption. It is built on assurance. In fact, as you read John's letter, uh, if you remember, if you've been keeping count, not, not that I had you keep count, you come up with the word no in some form or another over 30 times. See, no Christian, if asked whether or not they are going to heaven, needs to say, well, I hope so, or, you know, well, yeah, yeah, I think I'll make it, yeah. No, there, there, there's no need for us to have any doubt what, whatsoever. The Christian life is a life, 
It's free and it's exciting because it's based on solid knowledge. It's based on, on, on facts. In John 8, 32, it says, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus promised that. In, in 2 Peter 1, 16, uh, the testimony of the disciples was, We have not followed cunningly devised fables. Right? This is, this is our, our belief system is based on fact. These men, the disciples, almost all of them died for their faith. They did not give up their life for some clever hoax. They did not give up their life for some lie of their own devising, like, like the critics, critics of Christianity have, have proclaimed for years. No, they, they knew what they had seen. They knew what they believed. See, God's not interested in a guessing game. I mean, he's not interested in you having to wait to see whether or not you've made it into the kingdom of God. Oh, and by the time you find out whether you've made it or not, it's too late to change anything. See, confidence is, is, is the security of our salvation. It's established through faith. And it's available to you who believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, the significance of believing in the name of the Son of God, John repeated often in his gospel of John. In chapter 1, verse 12, it, it's equated with, with receiving Christ. In John 3.16, it's the way to avoid perishing is to believe on the name of the Son of God. In chapter 8 of John, verse 24, it's the only way to avoid paying for your own sins. In John 11.26 and in John 20.31, it is the only way for you to secure eternal life. What John had just written, now it's specifically verses 9 through 12, uh, by application, we can expand that to you know all the book of First John, then to all of Scripture, but it's most specifically verses nine through twelve. It aims to assure us that despite anything the false teachers had said, anything that the Antichrist have said, believers do indeed possess eternal life. And it can be pointed out, in fact, that that, that the assurance of our salvation always rests always rests fundamentally and sufficiently on the direct promises that God has made to you as a believer. In other words, your assurance rests on God's testimony. Your assurance rests on God's ability to keep his word. When it says in verse 13 that you may know, it's not speaking of... uh, experiential knowledge but it's speaking of absolute beyond the shadow of a doubt knowledge a positive knowledge a conscious knowledge of the possession of eternal life you know in this book there's various tests as to whether you have eternal life or not in chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 one of the assurances is that you are walking in the light Chapter 2, verse 3, another assurance is that you are keeping his commandments. Another assurance, chapter 3, verse 14, is that you love other believers. Chapter 5, verse 13 here tells us our last assurance is to believe on the name of the Son of God. This is how you know. And if you can know that you do have eternal life, then you can know if you do not have eternal life. 
And if you don't have eternal life, then you now know how to get eternal life. But God doesn't want you guessing. God does not want you unsure. If you're not sure, then the problem's not with God. The problem's not with God's word. He wants you to know absolutely whether you do or do not have eternal life. Verses 14 to 17. Verse 13 deals with the certainty of eternal life. Verses 14 to 17 deal with the certainty of answered prayer. Now we're not going to have a lot of problems with verses 14 and 15. Very straightforward. Verses 16 and 17 present kind of a challenge to us. And if I were a smarter pastor, I'd be able to explain it a little better. But uh, there's a lot of um, controversy on what verses 16 and 17 mean. We'll do the best we can. Verses 14 and 15 deal with the confidence we have of answered prayer. Look at, look at what it says. And this is the confidence, verse 14, that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. This verse 14 deals with the privilege of our confidence. Answered prayer is one of the greatest confirmations of your relationship to God. True believers will, will have an affinity for the will of God. They will, they will want the will of God. Now, having the above-dimensioned characteristics uh, present in our lives will, will possess a confidence when we come to him. And this confidence, that it, it's... it's it's the primary expression of, of, our, of, of, of our willingness, of, of our desire to come before God in prayer. And that confidence, we've, we've seen it pop up several times in the book. It is the free, uh, fearless confidence. It's cheerful courage. It's a, it's a boldness. As, as a child will bust into the office of their mom and dad knowing that there's not going to be any rejection no matter how busy mom and dad are going to be, that little kid can crawl right up in mom and dad's lap, interrupt them, grab their face, turn them so they're looking them eye to eye and talk about anything in the world they want to talk about. That's the confidence that is mentioned in verse 14. That's the confidence we have to approach our God. See, when a believer prays, believer doesn't pray like an unbeliever. Right? An unbeliever, their, their approach to prayer is, is a lot like their approach concerning their, their good works, okay? And their, their prayer and, and, and their good works, they're, they're designed to subject and, and try to manipulate God to, to their desire. I mean... Most people that have not been reconciled to God, most people that have not experienced the forgiveness of their sins and the, and the yieldedness of, of, of the absolute perfection uh, to, to, to God's will, they, they pray and they try to change God's mind to agree with them. But a believer is not, is not going to pray like that. A believer whose confidence before God is in his relationship with God through Christ is going to ask according to thy will. Not my will, 
but God's will. See, prayer is an expression of trust in the name of the authority of the Son of God. And in asking of God things in prayer, the believer is drawing themselves into a position of aligning themselves and yearning to see things from God's point of view. They don't want to manipulate God to fit into their paradigm. They want to shift their paradigm to fit into God's. I'm not speaking just about asking for things that we already know are God's will. That's, that's part of it. But, but it's more that, that, that heart attitude that, that seeks the yieldedness to God and his will when we approach him in prayer. So the believer who's in fellowship with God isn't going to ask for their own will, and they're not going to knowingly ask anything that is contrary to God's will. Well, naturally, Christians today... We discern God's will through the scriptures, and, and, and then we, we ask accordingly. So, so in this context, if we remember how we have victory through, through Christ, it's natural to, to suppose that John's kind of bringing to mind here our right as believers to ask God's help in keeping his commandments. Now, if we ask for what God has already told us we need to do, we're obviously asking according to God's will. When that's the case, as we come asking anything according to his will, he hears us. If, if, if we knew God's will thoroughly and, 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 and submitted to it heartily, It'd be impossible for us to ask anything, either for our, our, our soul, our body, uh, that he wouldn't do for us. So when it says he, he hears us, he heareth us, that's even when, when he doesn't give us what we ask. We have the absolute confidence that, that our fellowship with God, the companionship we have with the Father through, through Jesus Christ, uh, the intimacy of our relationship, that, that not only do we desire to approach him for guidance, but that he's attentive to us. God pays attention to his kids. He, he wants us to come to him and he will attend to us. He is never too busy to listen to his children. Look at verse 15. This shows us kind of the provision of our confidence. And this we know that he hear us, and, and if we know that, that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. So if we, we know that he hears us, and, and that, that if we know that's, that's that first class, that funny Greek thingy, we say, and since we know, all right, we know this. And since we know that God hears us, okay, that, that, that's an act of faith. You have to know, you have to believe that when you pray, God does hear you. We have our requests. Now, not always as we pray, but we have what we would pray if we were wiser, right? God doesn't give us uh, what we ask but necessarily, but he gives us what we need. 
Shakespeare said in one of his plays, we, ignorant of ourselves, beg often our own harms. Yet the wise powers deny us for our good, so find we profit by losing our prayers. Maybe the first time I've ever quoted Shakespeare in a sermon. To preach or not to preach, right? God knows that we don't always ask knowing the full outcome of our request. But God is not going to give us that which would harm us. It says that we have the petitions that we desire of him. We have right now. That's a present tense. That's present possession. Everything that we desire or ask of him. Not one of our prayers, listen to this, not one of our prayers offered in faith according to his will is ever lost. This is a privilege for us to participate with God in the accomplishment of his will as we are conformed to that will in prayer. And when we bring requests before God, surrendering to and agreeing with the supremacy of his sovereignty and his will the requests we make are taken by God they're embraced by him and he makes them his own how does that work I don't know I don't have to we have a solid assurance That when we go to God in faith, in prayer, according to his will, he embraces our prayers. And we may not get exactly what we ask for because we're not God, but we'll get exactly what we need. And that is a solid assurance that our prayers are always heard. They're never unanswered. But there's two limitations here. The first one is, of course, according to his will. We should pray according to his will. Whether it's the express will or implicit will, it's thy will be done. The second thing we see, the second limitation, is that it's not that he he grants it, it's that he hears us. So we don't get everything we ask for. That's never promised. What is promised is that he hears us and he answers according to his will. The granting of these requests are in part part of that that verification of our relationship, the verification of our confidence that we possess a relationship with God. And a person who fails to pray, if you fail to pray or, or if you don't know regular answers to your prayer, don't you have to wonder if you even have a right relationship with God in the first place? Because he promises to hear. And he will answer according to his will. God answers the prayers of his people. Now we get to verses 16 and 17. and This is where there's a lot of controversy. A lot of question. We're not going to bring up, you know, we're not going to set up straw men to try to knock them down. We're going to try to let the word of God speak for itself. What we have in verses 16 and 17, after we have just discussed praying, 
is, is some instruction on, on intercession, some, some guidelines to pray for other people. We see in the first part of verse 16 um, the, the, the correctness of intercession, if you want to call it that. Uh, it says, if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death. If anybody sees their brother committing a sin. What this means is that, that, that indifference on our part is unconscionable. We cannot be indifferent. Uh, it's an indication of, of the responsibility that we carry as believers to pray for other believers. It's the expression here or, 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 or the expectation that, that, that everyone who is born of God loves the brethren, right? We've gone over that and over that and over that. If you know Jesus Christ, you will love other believers. So you cannot look on or see another brother or sister sinning and look at them with indifference or amusement or contempt. You can't do that. How can you say you love me and watch me do something that will hurt me? You can't. I can't love you and watch you do something that is destructive to you. I can't. Not any more than we could let our own children go out on Egan in rush hour and play. If we love each other, we cannot be indifferent. It's just, it's just not allowed. It says, well, that's, uh, you know, none of my business what you do. Yes, it is. If I'm doing something that is hurting me, how can you be indifferent? But you look at the other side. I don't want nobody poking around my business. Like my southern accent there. It's, it's my business. Nobody else has any point mucking in it, right? It's my life, and you need to leave it alone. No. If we love each other, we cannot leave it alone. If you don't want people poking in your business... Too bad. If we love you, we must. The only way, if you don't want this to happen, the only way, your only recourse is to go where there are not believers who love you. Go hang out with the sinners, separate from the fellowship, and, 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 and go hang out with people who won't judge you, right? Because that's what you always hear. That's the only way out. Scripturally, that's our only alternative. A Christian who truly loves his brother or sister cannot be indifferent to their spiritual needs. Fulfilling the law of Christ necessitates that you be concerned about your brothers and sisters. So much so that you will seek to see them restored. But um, what do you do? How? Do you do that? Well, clearly, prayer is the most crucial place for us to turn. 
says that he shall ask and God will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. That sentence might mean that God will give the intercessor life. It could mean that the intercessor will be given life to the sinner through his prayers. See, all sin, all sin ultimately leads to death. So this is better translated. This does not lead to death. It it really ought to be understood uh, not punished by immediate death. This distinction between sins which are, uh, where death is a rapid consequence and then sins for which it's not a rapid consequence. And remember that there is no sin, if repented of, can be too great for God's mercy. It is possible, though, to shut the heart against the influences of God's Spirit so obstinately and persistently that repentance for you becomes a moral impossibility. And this, this sin unto death, it's not a single act of sin. It's not this, this mysterious sin unto death where if you commit this one sin one time, God's going to smack you. No, this is, this is an act of sin. A state, a habit of willfully choosing uh, to persist in sin. It's the constant and consummate opposition to God. And, and to use the phraseology of the rest of John's letter, we might say that it's a deliberate preference to darkness instead of light. A deliberate preference to, to falsehood instead of truth or to sin instead of righteousness. Uh, preferring the world instead of the Father, to prefer spiritual death to spiritual eternal life. Now, asking for a brother not sinning unto death, that's a, that's a humble petition, and it's, it's consistent with God's will. We're to pray for one another. But this request, this, this word for request, it's... Um, It's a word that means we've overstepped our bounds. It's a word that means that that we're praying for someone who has turned their back on God, and we're praying that God not allow the consequences of their actions. We're praying that God show mercy on them when mercy would be inappropriate, as if we make the judgment calls instead of God. You know, what God doesn't do here in this verse is give us any idea what that sin unto death is. It's no particular thing. We're told that this sin leading to death, the clear statement is is that the most severe degree of discipline by God is the death of his child. That sin unto death, or, or, or sinning unto death, there's a participle in there that doesn't come through in the English. Again, it's not a single act, but it's a habit of rebellion. It's a habit of sin. It's possible that John has the idea here that when he applies this to those who reject Jesus Christ, he may be talking about the antichrists that have rejected the deity of God and his ability, uh, of God the Son and his ability to save us then. But you see, persistent sin in the life of anybody who professes to be saved indicates that they're not saved. 
and that the ultimate end for them is spiritual death. The limitation has only to do with the unbeliever because a believer's full forgiveness was procured, of course, at the cross. So are we talking about a a true believer? Are we talking about just someone who says they're saved but not really and they just continue in the life of sin? That's where we're stuck. Because the word of God is not clear for us here. Recognize that the context teaches that John is addressing a believer or at least a confessed believer committing sin. Which means that if the person is lost, they can reject God and reject God and reject God and God will kill them. If they're a believer, they can disobey and disobey and disobey and God will discipline them by taking them home. Repeatedly in scripture, we are shown the fact that God does use death as an extreme form of discipline for his children. 1 Corinthians 11.30, there were those who insisted on taking the Lord's table unworthily and they were sick and, 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 and weak and many slept, which means they were dead. In Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we have Ananias and Sapphira who lied to the Holy Spirit and were killed. In James chapter 5, 19 and 20, we have those who are not turned from the error of their ways and God removes them from this life. But normally, God does not immediately use the extreme application of death in disciplining his kids. It might be the outcome if that child just refuses to repent of their sin. See, one commentary says it this way. We cannot pray that the sins of the impenitent and unbelieving should, while they are still rebelling, be forgiven them, or that any mercy of life or soul that supposed the forgiveness of sin should be granted to them while they continue such. But we may pray for their repentance. See, when a, when a brother or sister in the Lord falls, when they sin, it's the responsibility of other believers to come alongside of them for the purpose of winning them back, restoring them, seeing them reconciled back to God. But if they refuse to listen, what do you do? If, 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 if you see somebody and, and your heart is breaking for them, you know that the end of their activity is going to be severe discipline from God, what do you do? Matthew 18, verse 16, teaches that you don't just walk away with hurt feelings. If you go to them and you lovingly and compassionately uh, say, look, brother, sister, I see what's happening, and I'm worried for you, and, 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 and please let me pray with you. Let me help you. Please walk back to God. If, if they refuse that, then Scripture says you take you know, one or two more. Other believers that are compassionate about their restoration. And again, you lovingly, prayerfully, compassionately confront them. And if they refuse to hear that, then verse 17 says to, okay, it becomes a church issue then. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, 
begging and pleading with them to be restored back to God, to repent of their sins, then they're to be treated as a publican and a sinner. This response is explained again in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, when that one man was, he was having sex with his father's wife, probably his stepmom. They delivered him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now that means that after the long process of begging and pleading and praying for them to repent of their sins, to be restored, to, to, to be reconciled to God, and they refuse to repent, that we're then to release that one to the savagery of Satan for the destruction of their flesh physically so they may be restored spiritually. That sounds harsh. And yeah, that, 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 that's a little harsh, but that, that, that's the last resort of an unrepentant person to be convinced by their circumstances of pain and suffering to be turned back to the Lord. And I believe that this is what's referred to as committing the sin unto death for the believer, that the believer has refused to listen to the compassionate, prayerful pleading of the brethren, and then the small group, and then finally the church uh, delivers them over to, to the consequences of their action to be used uh, those those consequences used by God as chastisement and once the church delivers them over then really we're not supposed to pray that God would spare them any measure necessary for their restoration we are then to pray that whatever needs to happen does so they may ultimately be spared. That's some hard stuff. That's what the word of God says. We are to pray. And remember, if we love one another, we can't let each other continue in hurtful behavior, in sin, that would be harmful to us. If you drive by my house late at night, you see smoke coming from the attic. Are you going to just drive by? Oh, well, you know, he's sleeping. He probably doesn't want to be disturbed. It's really none of my business. No. You can't say you love me and do that. I can't say I love you and drive on by. Now, we're not, we're not judging each other. The activity is obvious. It is sin. God has already made the judgment. He's already told us what is sin and what is not. What we're doing is pleading with a brother or sister that is going to get disciplined by God if they don't repent of their sin, and we want to prevent that because we love them. Look at verse 17. She says, All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. Now, now this, is, this is the thrust. This is the main emphasis John has. It's not of that 
that sin unto death that we ought to be looking for. We know that, 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 that for somebody just to continue in sin for a lifetime, that person's lost. But for a Christian to, 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 to continually rebel against God, God's going to, to send home. But it's for that sin not unto death that we're to be watching for. It's that that activity that, that is harmful that we might be able to intercede for. See, the obstacle to reconciliation with God is sin. All unrighteousness is sin. I mean, that's what stands between any sinner and fellowship with their God is sin. And John warns against the, the, the lazy, lax thinking that some sins are permissible and some sins aren't. Okay, that, that, that's not right. There are no good sins. And you should never fall for the lie of choosing the lesser sin over the greater sin. See, sin is never, sin is never to be a choice. And faced with the lesser of two evils, or the two evils choose neither one. There's always the option not to sin. And if we pray for the unrepentant, it must be with a humble uh, uh, um, um, reference to the matter of God's will. I mean, the opportunity for, for, for reconciliation to God is, is that person repenting of their sins. So, so this sin that's not punishable by death, uh, I mean, God doesn't immediately turn to the most severe consequence for the sin to discipline us to, to, toward, towards restoration. See, see, see John's emphasis is, 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 is praying for our brothers and sisters that we see straying off the path. That's what we ought to be praying for, for one another. And, and, and when we do that, when we pray for one another, we are demonstrating his love, God's love, for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're, we're, we're obeying then the command that we've seen over and over and over again, that we love one another. And love is not what you say, love is not what you feel, but love is what you do. So will you let me play in traffic or will you say something because you love me? Will you let me stay in a burning house or will you say something because you love me? Brothers and sisters in Christ that love one another will lovingly, compassionately, prayerfully, without judgment, approach that person because they have to because they love God and they love them unrighteousness is one manifestation of sin lawlessness is the other manifestation of sin and see the world today it takes often believers take sin too lightly even joking they say, well it's only I'm only human right that, that's our excuse I'm only human no, 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 sin is a terrible reality and there, is, and there is no excuse for the believer to sin but there is no cause for despair as long as we repent. 
if we are repentant, then as we have seen in chapter 5, we have overcome that sin in Christ. Remember in Romans chapter 8, Paul made up that word, overcomer. You are more than overcomers. He made up that word, super overcomer in Christ. If you are pliable in God's hands, if you are repentant of your sin, then that sin does not become a sin unto death but you exercise your victory over that sin. And you do that with the help of one another, praying for each other, loving each other. whole book of 1 John has told us to love one another. And here we see we're to love one another even when we sin. We're to love one another even when one another sins. Maybe even especially when we sin. Stand with your heads bowed and eyes closed. Father, we want to thank you again for your word. And we thank you for your love for us and your determination to see us shaped into the image of Christ. And Father, we have looked in your word this morning and we have gone uh, from one extreme to the other. Lord, of, of knowing that we have eternal life, of knowing that you hear and answer our prayers, to knowing once again that sin causes death. Father, we ask very simply this morning, those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, Father, work in us that we cannot help but love one another. However that love might manifest, praying for one another, doing things for one another interceding for one another as a demonstration of your love for us and our love for each other. And Father, by this, may everyone know that we are your disciples because we indeed love one another. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Keith, would you come ahead?